All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Well, welcome back, everybody, to our 15th episode. It's mid-November, and like any good cliffhanger, the nation's biggest questions were hanging in the balance long enough that the tension was palpable earlier this month. But we've had the better part of a week to digest the results. So today, of course, we'll be talking about what's going on with Tom Brady's Buccaneers and why the Saints seem to have their number. Also, there was an election, and we'll probably touch on that uh, as well if we have time. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is the singular, Glenn Thomas. Glenn, it's officially our one-year anniversary. We obviously couldn't throw a party because of the international pandemic and all that, but did you do anything on your own to celebrate? Well, first of all, happy anniversary, Rory. Happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, one-year anniversary. We're officially one year old. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, when I think about the podcast and when we started this thing and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell a little inside baseball here. This was Rory's idea to come up with this podcast idea. You know, we had a couple of good conversations about what to do with it. And when we started out, we wanted it to be a conversation about more than ourselves and try to be relevant and bring issues in that we thought would be of interest to folks. And it's just been an absolutely amazing year. When I think about it, we've had you know two sitting FERC commissioners join us, two former FERC commissioners join us. We had a sitting state commissioner join us, a former state commissioner join us. We had a consumer advocate join us. We had a CEO from one of the largest energy companies in the country. Uh, we had the PJM Independent Market Monitor. So we've had great guests manage to join us, and it's just been a great ride. And we thank all the listeners for the tremendous feedback we've gotten along the way, because that's really the fuel that keeps this thing going. And we got a lot of exciting things planned for the future, including today's show, but uh, it's been a great ride, Rory. So uh, it's been a pleasure riding it with you. (laughs) Uh, I agree. It's been a lot of fun and we have had some really great conversations along the way. And I feel like our audience has, has appreciated those conversations as well. And one of those conversations was so interesting that we've decided to do it again. This is part due. Glenn, would you mind introducing our guest for the second time? Yeah, absolutely. And it's an it's absolute honor to welcome back to the podcast, Neil Chatterjee from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Chairman Chatterjee has been with us before. He's very familiar to everybody who listens to this show. So I really don't need to go through a lot of his past. We all know he used to work on Capitol Hill for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He's been at the FERC since 2017. I think he might have gotten a little jealous when I uh, referred to Commissioner LaFleur as the ultimate utility (laughs) infielder because now Commissioner Chatterjee is, you know, placing the the title change a few times and uh, remains steadfast uh, along the way. So welcome, Commissioner Chatterjee, to the GT Power Hour. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Uh, Happy anniversary for any of your listeners who watch Game of Thrones, there's a great episode at the end of season five called The Gift, when Jura Mormont brings uh, Tyrion Lannister and delivers him uh, to uh, Daenerys Targaryen. So I am your gift uh, for your uh, one-year anniversary. <laughs> uh, does that mean we're going to get beheaded at some point? I don't watch the show, but that, that seems to be how most of the stories end there, from what I understand. And no, it's, uh, it's death by dragon, actually. I was going to uh, say okay. that. Uh, 
there are a couple of different creative ways that could have ended. And you know what? And I have to say this, Commissioner, you know, this adds a whole other level because I know there was some discussion earlier about you being a Star Trek fan, I believe, based on some evaluation of books that you have. Or maybe it was Star Wars. I forget. Star Wars, um, Star Wars. Yeah, Star right. Wars, right. So now we have added another layer to your, your sort of backstory here and what, what you're interested in. Good. You, you I, can just get, get it out of the way. You can just call me a nerd. It's fine. I'll own it. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but I'm glad that you just you walked down. <laughs> the uh the rose garden pathway with me that was great well glenn why don't we get started because we got a lot to talk about sure absolutely and let's let's just talk about this first issue so we can uh get it out of the way if you will now you know obviously the story last week was the election and what happened at the top of the ticket and the change of administration that's going to be coming towards dc but you know certainly in the energy space one of the biggest news stories from last week was the change in your title from chairman to commissioner uh, and like I mentioned at the top, you know, that's a transition you've made before. But why don't you just share with our listeners, you know, your thoughts on that transition? I mean, did you see it coming? Um, you know, any insights you want to provide on it? And, uh, you know, how do you see it affecting things moving forward? Yeah, uh, obviously, it's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. So let's just go ahead and address it. No, I wasn't totally surprised by it. You know, I have been highly intentional in my agenda over the past couple of years. I made very clear when I first joined the commission that I wanted to do something about mitigating carbon emissions, but that I wasn't in favor of heavy-handed regulations or subsidies or mandates, and that I preferred a market-based approach to carbon mitigation. And I think that's been largely consistent throughout my tenure and leadership at the commission. But I did know that when I broached the topic of carbon pricing as an alternative to subsidies or mandates, that that could raise the ire of certain folks. Now, keep in mind, I did have pressure from some far-left liberal groups like the Natural Gas Supply Association uh, and EPSA who, and P3 who were asking to do this. Uh, almost the entirety of the energy industry submitted supportive comments both in terms of our hosting the technical conference on carbon pricing as well as moving forward with the proposed policy statement. But look, part of this may be due to my prior role in the U.S. Senate where myself and my colleagues and others did yeoman's work branding a price on carbon as a negative thing over the years. And so now where you have some consensus amongst industry and economists that this is a pretty smart conservative way to go about it, particularly when coupled with the steps that we have taken within markets to push back on market distorting things like subsidies. I actually thought this was a pretty smart conservative way to move forward, but I wasn't surprised that some folks would simply see the headline and have a knee-jerk reaction. And I suspect that's what's happened here, that folks that really don't follow the policy that closely saw what they thought was something that was not in their interest and made a move. I have stated clearly, I can say with a high degree of certainty that neither the president nor anyone in his 
top circle was focused on FERC on the day of the election or in the subsequent days after. I think this was done at junior rungs in the administration in the midst of a wild time. They saw an opportunity to take a message and they sent it. And honestly, the reason I'm at peace with it is it's totally fine. It really doesn't change much. The agenda that the commission will take on over the next 10 weeks is the agenda that my staff and I put together that I was already ready and comfortable voting for. So we're going to move forward with the agenda that I'd already put in place. And then I was going to have to turn over the gavel on January 20th anyway. So it really just boils down to a symbolic gesture. But that symbolic gesture is important, and it speaks to those of us who believe in market-driven solutions to combating climate change. We need to do a better job of communicating to the political right that this is actually a smart, conservative way to go about this policy. I thought your reaction in, in your interview with Josh Siegel at the uh, Washington Examiner, I mean, you basically came out and said, listen, I, I was doing what I believed in. Uh, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I mean, again, we have a lot of commissioners that listen to this show. That's, that's great advice. And, and many times as a commissioner, you're put in that spot where you're kind of torn between what you know is the right thing to do and what you know might you know, rankle some feathers in and among your political support. And that's, that's part of the reason commissions are made, to make tough decisions. And it's kind of interesting you point out, you know, radical groups like EPSA and P3 and the Natural Gas Supply Association. Yeah, I mean, the, the conversation is changing on carbon and it's changing right in front of our very eyes. And putting in place some sound policies that help address this in a way that keeps all the benefits of markets that we've worked for decades to put in place makes infinite sense. And yeah, I mean, that's just the gospel we got to keep continuing to preach uh, going forward here. So, uh, you know, we'll certainly do everything we can. And it sounds like you're prepared to do everything you can. Yes, sir. We've got a great opportunity. I think looking at what is the most likely outcome of the election is that we will have divided government in Washington. That means these questions are going to continue to percolate at the state level within FERC jurisdictional markets. And so I think FERC's role in this is going to be more and more critical. And if we're in agreement that this is a smart way to go about it, we need to uh, be very active in engaging with stakeholders to inform them uh, of the reasons why and uh, the benefits, the acknowledged downsides, and seek to find common ground. Commissioner, if I understood what you said earlier, was this always the sort of needle that you hoped to thread? Or were you kind of responding to the realities of the conditions that you saw on the ground? Yeah, I mean, look, this is something that I've been contemplating for some time. To be candid, when I was originally serving as a commissioner, and I was hoping to serve as a sidekick to Chairman McIntyre, um, my goal was to press Chairman McIntyre to move towards this approach of a market solutions-based approach to carbon mitigation. And I was hopeful of my ability to move him in that direction. And based on some of the conversations I had with him before he became ill, I think he was receptive to that dialogue. When I stepped into the chairmanship, it's a, it's a different role. You have a lot more things to balance. 
Um, and I just recognize in this environment in Washington today, to get something done, you have to be highly intentional in how you go about it. And so my team, specifically my lawyer, Rachel Marsh and I, we really set out on this course a year and a half ago, two years ago, working with groups to try and learn and familiarize ourselves with market dynamics, look at elements of market design and what we thought might work, and move towards this outcome. And I think the fact that you had groups like NGSA and EPSA and P3 come forward on this initial petition asking us to convene the tech conference, that didn't happen by accident. That was the result of hours upon hours upon hours uh, of discussion uh, about what the best way forward would be. So that's my long-winded senatorial way of saying um, (laughs) this was a very deliberate strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you've been laying the groundwork for this for, you know, the, more than a year. You hosted a day-long technical conference on the topic of carbon pricing at the end of September and then issued a, a fairly aggressive policy statement a couple of days later. Where where do you see this thing going? So I think what FERC policy statements are, right, is their roadmaps, their guideposts to entities. And I thought the key and the reason I wanted to get the policy statement out was that there was a sense among stakeholders that there was great agreement that this this particular course of carbon mitigation in the markets was a smart one. But folks were doing the math and looking at the current iteration of the commission. And I think there was a concern that this particular commission would not take this up. And I thought by putting forward the policy statement, it would indicate two things, that submissions would not be a dead letter at our door, but also in the interests of having viable filings, we wanted to put some guardrails out there to indicate to stakeholders that you have to factor in things like economic leakage um, and protecting states that perhaps aren't interested in pursuing these kinds of policies. There there has to be transparency in LMP. Um, And my thought there was uh, rather than having folks guess as to what might or might not be considered legally viable and just and reasonable um, by the commission, we'd put some guideposts out there. And my hope is that stakeholders now who are, uh, and, and, and to be very clear, my thought was, and we did this in October before the election, my view was regardless of what happened in the election, this issue was not going away. That if President Trump had been reelected, the states were only going to double down on their efforts, right, right. and that that could have potential impacts on our markets, and we needed to take steps to defend our markets. And that, as it looks, that we have President-elect Biden with a divided Washington. I don't think you're going to see a Green New Deal or $2 trillion in green economic stimulus. And so in the absence of those things, these policy fights are going to continue at the state level. And I thought that this was the opportune time to put out a roadmap that laid out market defensive protocols that folks could follow when submitting a filing ultimately to the commission. Yeah, trying to read in between the lines of the policy statement, I thought it could have gone 
either of two ways. One was, as you said, sort of a roadmap for how we actually get this done. And the other was actually creating sort of a dead end. But it sounds to me like your intention here was to offer yeah, guideposts for how you can get this done. Is that what you expect long term? My goal was to be constructive. Yeah. My goal was also to build a record around some of the, the legal and jurisdictional questions. I, for one, was uncomfortable, and it seemed, based on the testimony we got at the tech conference, that a number of legal scholars and experts were uncomfortable with the idea that FERC could unilaterally pursue this course under Section 206. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought there was great value in spelling that out mm -hmm. in the policy statement that if something was going to bubble up to the commission via 205, there seemed to be broad consensus that we had the legal authority to consider it. We weren't saying we would accept or reject it, but that we had the legal authority to consider it. But I thought it was an important signal to send that uh, 206 was off the table. And so my goal ultimately was not to have a dead end, but to be constructive uh, and signal where this configuration of the commission stood. Would you mind commenting on how much collaboration you got with the other commissioners on this? Yeah, so I worked very closely um, with Commissioner Glick on it. I worked obviously closely with the staff team on it. Um, and even Commissioner Danley, in his dissent, uh, simply made the point that he thought it was unnecessary at this time and that the commission ought to wait to see what got filed. But even Commissioner Danley, in his dissent, did not really refute the notion that we had the legal authority to consider a filing under Section 205. How soon do you think you may see a 205 filing? Any, any sense on when that actually may come in the door? I can't make predictions on timing, but I do know that there have been entities that have been working on this for quite some time that perhaps we're waiting for a signal from the commission or for, we're waiting for election results before they calibrated whether their post-filing would be viable or not. And I wanted to get ahead of that and say, regardless of what happens in the election, this issue is not going away and this commission's not going to duck it. We feel we have the legal authority to engage send us your filings. Whether that speeds up or slows down folks who have been working on this is a question for outside stakeholders. I can't make that prediction. You've invited folks to the party. It's up to them to show up. Do you have any prediction on who will show up first? I do not. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll wait to see what happens. Okay. My prediction is that PJM is third. Uh, <laughs> well, they so won't be first. I know, they I'm, won't be first. Uh, I think New York and New England probably come in before yeah, PJM, yeah. but I think PJM is going to pay close attention. That's my yeah. prediction. They enjoy being fashionably late. I've, <laughs> well, they have different dynamics in fairness. I mean, if you look True. at you know New York, a single state RTO who's been discussing this for a couple of years, you got New England with every state and Reggie. There's different political dynamics in both those areas as opposed to PJM. And if you look at the current stakeholder process that's going on in PJM, regarding carbon pricing. They have been very clear from the beginning that the intent is not 
to drive towards a carbon price. It's simply to talk about how we could accommodate a carbon price within the markets that currently exist there. And the most recent meeting, there was actually some representatives from West Virginia and also utilities in Kentucky came in and specifically made some comments voicing concerns about what seemed to them to be driving towards carbon pricing. So there's definitely some hurdles to continue to talk about and overcome if that is even where PJM ends up going. No question. There'll be a lot of work in all of the different regions. And uh, let's see where it goes. I'd still love any insight or thoughts that you have, Commissioner, on the election itself, what the results mean, and where you think all of that might go beyond carbon pricing. Yeah, look, I think it was a fascinating electoral result in that you had one candidate who appears to have won the presidency, yet the opposing party gained 12 seats in the House of Representatives and held control of the Senate. And so to me, I think that's an indication that Americans uh, made a decision, a referendum, if you will, on the current president, but we're not ready to embrace progressive government. Mm -hmm. And in the run-up to the election, if you believed the polls and the media consensus, there seemed to be this idea that America was ready to go in a very progressive direction. And I think these election results quite clearly dispel that. So now you're looking at moving forward in 2021 with a divided government, narrow Democratic majority in the House, narrow Republican majority in the Senate with a Biden administration. I, for one, am optimistic, having witnessed firsthand uh, how President-elect Biden and Senate Majority Leader McConnell have historically worked together, that we can get some positive things done for the country and for the American people. I am also comforted to know that we are not likely to see sweeping transformative legislation in a new direction that clearly the country wasn't ready for. And so uh, buckle up. It's going to be an interesting couple of years. <laughs> Maybe I'll offer a comment on the election in Pennsylvania, because I think some of the the chairman's comments there are very indicative of what happened in, in Pennsylvania. It's more maybe like a microcosm, but it, it was fascinating result in that Biden did win narrowly in Pennsylvania. When you break down, you know, where Trump did well and where Biden did well, there's a lot of messages for energy, particularly in the areas where, you know, fracking is a big industry in Pennsylvania. Trump actually increased his margins in those areas and statewide. Um, Republicans actually gained seats in the state house and the state Senate. There were three statewide races uh, for auditor general, treasurer, and attorney general. Republicans took two of three with basically not even running candidates that were, you know, well-funded or putting out a lot of effort, quite frankly. So it was a repudiation, I think, of the notion that some of these progressive policies are what at least the people of Pennsylvania want. So again, fascinating election with fascinating outcomes that will have a lot of consequences for governing, as we just heard. So yeah, I agree. It's going to be an interesting four years. Yeah, it seemed like it was mostly a referendum on a single position. In, in, yeah, in but a lot of there. times that comes with coattails, right? Historically, sure. and it didn't. It, it was just the opposite. And Pennsylvania, for the first time, has gotten rid of straight party ticketing on the ballot. You used to be able to go and impress either Republican or Democrat. 
that was gone. And you saw a lot of ticket splitting. And I think you saw that in a lot of other places in the country too. Well, let's get back to FERC specifically. Commissioner, let's talk about your legacy as chairman. Now that we can look back on what the time frame will be, on November 5th, you tweeted, to say I'm proud of what we've achieved would be an understatement. From PURPA reform to clearing the FERC backlog, from battery storage to order 2222, from LNG approvals to carbon pricing, not to mention facing COVID. We've tackled the biggest energy issues of our time. Is this how you would like your tenure as chairman to be remembered? I leave it to you all and others to determine what my legacy is and how my tenure will be viewed. I can simply say to myself that uh, I had stated before that if I could look back and say that I've left behind a regulatory ecosystem that enables new technologies to flourish, that I'd be able to hold my head up high. You add on top of that what I think is my proudest accomplishment which is managing the agency through this difficult last nine-month period where we got so much done while keeping the staff safe. That's probably what I'm proudest of. But certainly when you look at the substantive achievements of the past three and a half years, I think it is not hyperbolic to say that FERC has not only shaped energy policy in the country. We've really shaped and led the energy conversation. And I think looking forward to 2021, where you will have divided government in Washington, I think suddenly FERC becomes the epicenter of the energy policy debate the next several years. Given the election results and sort of what you've set up here, where do you think FERC will go from here? What's the future look like? So I think the issues that we've teed up, we're going to be able to build upon them. And then also, as I mentioned, issues around market design, state policies, those aren't going away. So I think looking to the future, implementation and compliance on 22-22, will be significant, continuing to look at transmission and build on the work we've done on incentives and ROE, looking at some of the work we've done on grid-enhancing technologies will be critical. And then, obviously, these questions around markets are going to be front and center. I intend to stay. I intend to be an important voice in the conversation. And in many ways, I find myself perfectly positioned to be a broker in between a Biden administration and a Senate Republican majority. Okay, great. Well, we're going to move into one of our favorite sections of the show. Since we're talking about future prognostication, let's keep that alive and well as we go into rapid fire, which as you know, Commissioner, is where we just sort of pelt you with questions so fast that you can only give whatever your immediate reaction is. So with this one, since you've done this before, we're going to add a second layer here about predicting the future. I am going to say that in the year 2024, Will we have a variety of situations? And I'm just going to name the situation. I'm asking you to give us your prediction. And then Glenn and I will get to be like first commissioners and agree or disagree with your prediction. So in the year 2024, will we have a federal price on carbon? No. Yep, I think I agree. Okay. All right. I don't think I disagree. So I'll keep moving on. In the year 2024, will we 
have a federal clean energy standard? For the same reasons as the previous question, the votes won't be there in the United States Senate. No. Yep, I agree with that too. Okay. 2024, will we have offshore wind in the Atlantic Ocean? And if so, how much? Wow. Um, answer has to be a definitive yes. Yes. But I won't put a number on how much. We'll see real growth. But look, there's a lot of factors at play. At our recent offshore wind tech conference, panelists presented that from Virginia on up the East Coast, state uh, long-term offshore wind procurement targets total just under 30 gigawatts. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think I, I agree as well. I think we will have some offshore wind. I don't think it'll be anywhere near 30,000 megawatts. If I was setting an over-under on that right now, particularly in 2024, I would put the number probably around it's a question whether it's online or under construction. Let's say uh, under construction, I'm going to put the over-under around 3,000 megawatts in 2024. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dominion has announced that they already have some offshore. I'm not sure that it is large scale, but they have put some stuff online, if I'm not mistaken. Let me throw one out and follow up to that. Do you think we'll have a PTC and an ITC in 2024? Mm. I'm going to go ahead and say no. I think you're right on that as well. I, I agree. It's yep, about it's, time. So. It's, it's moved. Yeah. In the year 2024, will PJM have a RTO-wide price on carbon? I don't want to prejudge. Oh, I think by 2024, PJM will have something. Really? I yeah, I do. I do. Um, I don't um, know if it'll be a region-wide price on carbon, but I think there will have been something that was filed at the commission consistent with the policy statement that addresses um, that addresses carbon. Will it be filed or will it be approved and implemented? I mean, those are potentially two uh, significantly. Yeah, that's, a, that's a tougher question to answer. Yeah. But uh, I think something will be filed. And yeah, I'll take the next step and say, I think it will be approved okay. and implemented. Okay. I'm uh, not sure that I agree. Maybe I'm the pessimistic one now. Okay. Okay. 2024, grid-scale batteries that last 20 hours. Boy, uh, I am not an engineer. I am not a futurist. But I'm going to go ahead and push all my chips in on storage here. Storage has been one of my priorities at the commission. And I got to tell you, I went to NREL in Colorado last month. And one of my key takeaways from that trip was that we are seeing an unprecedented, hugely accelerated pace of change right now. Grid scale batteries are only going to get more and more powerful. Yeah, I think I agree. There's some brilliant minds working on this, and 20 hours might actually be on the low side. I agree. The, the trajectory on this is phenomenal. The, 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 all the motivations are in place to keep improving this technology. My hope is that we don't push all those chits in on some technologies that are just inferior when there's so much potential out there for some really fantastic stuff coming online. So I'm bullish on storage as well. 2024, will FERC have a five-member commission? Boy, that's up to uh, the White House and the U.S. Senate. The only thing I can guarantee is that Neil Chatterjee will not be one of them. <laughs> so, so are you making news here? You're not seeking reappointment? <laughs> I'm going to finish my term. All right. Fair enough. Will Democrat majorities exist in the House and or the Senate? In 2024? Yep. 
I don't believe so. Well, the Republicans have the majority in 2024 in the House. I think they get it back in 22. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think I agree. So it will be an aligned legislature. Yes. Republicans will have both houses. Yeah. Yeah. 2024. Will PJM have a moper? Yes. Let's run a couple auctions and everyone will calm down. I agree. Will there be a Supreme Court decision on the PJM moper? No, it won't get that far. Yep, I agree as well. Okay. Will the U.S. be back in the Paris Accord? All signs there point to yes. However, I do not believe there will be a binding vote in the Congress to ratify it, and that's significant. Yeah, I was going to say, if we're piecing together some of the dots that we've created here. I mean, we're talking about uh, all Republican legislature as of 2022. Will it happen before that or after that? Or how, how do those dominoes fall? The president-elect seems to indicate that on day one, he's going to put the U.S. back in. Mm-hmm. But without that binding ratification vote in the Congress, I think our international allies will be left to wonder whether our participation will fluctuate based on the swinging of the political pendulum. Right. I want to follow up on this because it's an interesting point. How how much does that matter to the FERC conversation or does it matter at all in your mind? I don't think it matters at all to the FERC conversation. I think we will continue to do our work and permit market forces to lead to carbon reductions. How that plays into these macro foreign policy conversations, I will leave to the foreign policy experts. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And even if you look at, I frequently go back and look at the Clean Power Plan goals for the states in the PJM region, and I think in every state, we're ahead of the game. It's it's pretty amazing just how quickly the the, the grid is being decarbonized, uh, certainly beyond any expectations when you know, we were having these Paris conversations the last time. So it should be an interesting issue to watch over the next four years as well. In 2024, will there be major judicial revisions to the Chevron deference doctrine? I'm going to go out and say yes. I think John Roberts actually laid the groundwork for this in his original decision upholding the Affordable Care Act. Go back and read his opinion. Yeah, and I, I think this, I mean, this is, we're going to really establish our energy nerddom with this question <laughs> and this conversation. But I think this is going to be one of the more interesting issues to watch over the next four years, how the Chevron deference doctrine gets changed, because I think it will change. Um, how much it changes, I think, is to be determined. I think agencies, and for, the, for our listeners who may not know what the Chevron deference doctrine is, it's basically... I think it stems from cases in the 80s where um, the United States Supreme Court basically came out with a doctrine that said federal agencies should be entitled to deference when there's vagueness in federal statute. And over the years, uh, there's been several dissenting opinions at the Supreme Court challenging whether that was appropriate. And I think with the new complexion of the Supreme Court, there's going to be you know, Chevron's going to be viewed with a lot of skepticism. And now I got to go read the affordable <laughs> care act case. Certainly wasn't on my reading list. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, I was always hoping I wouldn't have to actually read that. I mean, it was some, you know, it was some serious multi-level uh, chess or jujitsu by, uh, by the chief justice. And I will just go on the record as saying, I loathe Chevron deference, except when it comes to my cases. <laughs> there you go, there you go, there you go. 
Well, we had Glick on, you know, I had to read uh, Franz Kafka after uh, listening, you know, after that podcast. Now I get to read Judge Roberts. So yeah. a little bit easier to understand. But, Which okay. might be equally as dense. Yeah, yeah, probably. Okay. In 2024, will we have a revised Jones Act? No. Worked this issue for a number of years in the Senate. It's not political or partisan. It's regional. And those regional dynamics are not going to change. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I yeah, thought based on sort of the news that had been coming out uh, recently that they probably would have created the groundswell to get that done. But this is good insight. A lot of barges in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> in 2024, will there be nuclear plants in competitive markets? Yes. I agree. What about coal plants? Yes. Hmm. I okay. agree as well. Okay. There'll yep, be fewer yep. of them, but they'll still be there. Okay. So in 2024, will it be more likely that we will have seen a Tom Brady retirement party or a Super Bowl celebration? One more Super Bowl between now and 24. But not this year. Well, if uh, the Saints choke in an earlier round of the playoffs <laughs> like they've been known to do, yeah. maybe. I mean, Brady's going to have to have to get past the Steelers this year to get that far. So I'm going to say, uh, wow. not this year. And uh, I, I, I don't I, think we see. I do. So I hope big. I, I hope Big Ben recovers from COVID. But should you get a Bucks Steelers Super Bowl, and Antonio Brown burns the Steelers for the game-winning touchdown, <laughs> wouldn't that oh be God. poetic? Oh my God! Yeah, that, that really would be. Well, here's a little bit of trivia that I learned the other day that is relevant right here. There are now, with Biden's election, five universities in the country that have produced both a president and a Super Bowl winning quarterback. University of Delaware, Stanford University, the University of Michigan, the Naval Academy, that's four, right? And Miami University. So in Miami, I'm going to take it a step further. Okay, I, I love this trivia question. Uh, name the president and name the quarterback. I can name them all. All five? I don't know if I can do all five, uh, but I did have so, to look up Miami University, so <laughs> I'll let you go ahead. Stanford, it's Hoover and Elway. Uh-huh. Na- Naval Academy, it's Staubach uh-huh. and Carter. Uh-huh. Uh, Miami oh. of Ohio, it's Roethlisberger and yep. Harrison. Yeah, I had to look that one up. Um, uh, and then you've got uh, Delaware. Uh, M- Michigan is Brady and Ford. Uh-huh. And then Delaware, my assumption is, I'm going to go with this, uh, Biden and Flacco. Flacco, yeah. That's absolutely right, 100%. Good work. Wow, is, is wow, Jimmy, well. Jimmy Carter the only U.S. president to go to the Naval Academy? I, yeah, I can't I don't, think of I any others, but... Yeah, that's great. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I was a little surprised that University of Texas wasn't on that list. Not that I'm a fan, but I just thought that there would <laughs> probably be something come out of there. So 2024, will we have Brady or Breeze as the reigning career passing touchdown champion? Brady just purely on longevity. I think okay. he lasts a season or two longer than Breeze. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. I think Breeze may have one or this may be his last or he has one more. I kind—I mean, it, it does seem like that kind of last gasp, and he's, he seems to be breaking away, creating a little daylight right now, but Brady will be the tortoise in this one and just keep going on. Okay, 2024, will we have Mitch McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader? We will. Never bet 
against the apex predator. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a good quote. I love it. Okay. Over under on the University of Kentucky Hoops Championships, and we are currently at eight. Nine. Hmm. We get one. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen them this year. I don't know what they look like yet. I haven't seen the early predictions, I mean, of the uh, of the college basketball season. Which year do you think it happens in? Uh, I think this this could be it. Okay. Uh, they're pretty loaded going into 21. They got a grad transfer from uh, Wake Forest that I think is going to provide some senior leadership and interior presence that is going to make them pretty tough. It's hard to disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, he's such a great recruiter down there. Yeah. And- any given year, right, they can get that match. Yeah, you can never bet against. I mean, if you're taking the field, obviously, maybe you would take the field against Kentucky, but one-on-one, it's it's oh. hard to ever bet, bet against them. Okay. In the year 2024, Commissioner, will we see you employed in the private or public sector? Boy, that is a great question. <laughs> uh, I'm not certain of the answer. What I will say is this. I will say with absolute 100% certainty that this will not be my last job in public service. I don't know if my next one will be elected, appointed, staff, or volunteer, but uh, (laughs) I will serve my country again. Okay. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, now it's time for our favorite section of the show. Well, definitely Glenn's favorite section of the show. (laughs) in which we offer unsolicited advice to someone whom we think really needs it. You have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere, on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Commissioner, this month, who are you going with and what are you saying? Uh, I'm going to give my unsolicited advice to recently demoted FERC chairman Neil Chatterjee (laughs) to say, hold your head up high, embrace your family, You've had a good run. Uh, Enjoy it. Be proud of it. uh, And continue uh, to serve your country with grace and everything will be just fine. Well said. And before I give my advice, I just want I want to quibble with one of the words you said in giving advice to yourself. Don't don't look at this as a demotion because it's not a demotion. I mean, your vote counts the same as every other member on that commission. You have a little less control over the agenda, but as somebody who personally made that transition from chairman to commissioner as well, uh, and you've done it as well too, there's enormous opportunities as a commissioner to do a heck of a lot of good. And in many respects, um, it's, it's liberating. And a lot of listeners may not appreciate that or understand that, but it's challenging being the chairman because many times you're put in a position where you have to compromise maybe something that you feel strongly about in order to get the votes necessary to get it out the door, because ultimately it's, as a chair of an agency, you're responsible for making sure the trains run on time, that orders get out the door and what have you. Whereas as a commissioner, you're a little bit more liberated to maybe speak your voice a little and get your, your thoughts more out there. So um, by no means, don't look at this as a demotion. This is just a, you know, a slight change in focus and there's an enormous amount of opportunities out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, but I still got advice for somebody else, Rory, now that I gave advice to, to, to Mr. Chatterjee. Well, now that we had a little bit of hope, Glenn, who yeah. do you want to talk to this month? Yeah, I have uh, Ron Klain, who uh, just this week, incoming, uh, or President-elect Biden named as his incoming chief of staff. Uh, and my advice to Mr. Klain, if he's listening, is to send a good early signal that the administration is going to respect Burke. 
respect the job that FERC does and the importance of being an independent FERC is not a policy arm of the administration. FERC is not a place where we stash political appointees. FERC should not be told by the White House what it should do. FERC is different. FERC is not a cabinet level agency. FERC has serious business conduct and needs to be allowed to do its job in a professional and apolitical manner. That's not to say that FERC can't complement a agenda, a political agenda. It certainly can. FERC literally moves billions of dollars around the economy and has an enormous say over what America's energy infrastructure looks like. In fact, FERC has a long history of incorporating public policies into its decisions and its actions. In many respects, this is what FERC does. But the process and form matter, particularly as it relates to FERC. FERC needs to be able to do its business the right way. Temptations to interfere with FERC will be there. There will no doubt be some, someone that knocks on your door to tell you to tell FERC to do something. Resist that temptation. Um, it's very important that you thank them for your suggestion, but at the end of the day, don't pick up the phone and call the FERC chairman. Let FERC be FERC. If you take that approach, you will be rewarded in the long run as the ability of FERC to independently do its business will prove a tremendous validation of its actions. You win, FERC wins, and Americans win. So, Mr. Klain, if you're listening, in regards to FERC, respect the agency, respect the process. Very nice, very nice. My two minutes this month, I'm not even going to take two minutes, is to USA Rugby. Anyone who listens to the podcast will know that I am a rugby fan. I am excited about the sport in the country. USA Rugby is currently mired in a very confusing bankruptcy situation, and no one really knows what's going on. And you add on top of that this pandemic and the sport isn't being played right now. I'm asking USA Rugby to sit down, take this time, take a time out, really figure out a long-term path forward. Let's get this game back together in the U.S. And let's, for years, we have been considered the sleeping giant here in the U.S. That if Americans ever realize their potential in rugby, we could rule the world stage on that. And in certain aspects we have, but when, the, when the, the country with sort of the New York Yankees pedigree is New Zealand, we got a lot of opportunity here. Let's sit down, get this right, get the situation moving forward and really cash in on the potential that the United States has to be, as they are with many other things, dominant in the world of rugby. Okay, while we're called the GT Power Hour... We pride ourselves on never taking that actual full hour. And this month, we were as speedy as the Wildcats in transition, taking all of our topics to the rack in record time. So you're going to get more than 11 minutes back. Everyone who's listening, our audience, please use those bonus minutes to ponder what Breeze and the Saints know about Tampa Bay and the Buccaneers that the rest of us seem to have missed because they really have their number. Commissioner Chatterjee, thank you again for gracing us with your presence for a second time. Do you have any last thoughts before heading back into the DC machine? Uh, thanks for having me. That last message was delivered like a true flanker. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. That was my initial position that I started at, and then I got old and slow and had to move elsewhere in the pack. But I appreciate you understanding the sport, and we'll have to have you back in the early spring for your thoughts on Six Nations and how they've all. I wish I had played, but I would have been a lousy hooker. <laughs> well, you know the positions well enough. That's great. That's great. We'll definitely have to do some analysis later on. Glenn, any last thoughts from you this month? 
No, thank you, Chairman Chatterjee, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh, it's, now that we have you on record for all these future predictions, we're going to keep track on it. These tapes won't go away. And in 2024, maybe we'll have an episode and uh, we'll see how correct uh, we both were on these predictions. So thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. And Rory, wait, before we, before we conclude the show, I just want to wrap up with one question for, uh, for, for Commissioner Chatterjee. Oh, here. okay. Okay, uh, little, so... An audible, yeah, so the last episode, we had uh, Commissioner LaFleur on, and she referred to Rob Pallison as her annoying little brother on the commission. <laughs> I want to know if you were a little bit jealous that Rob got that title and you didn't get that title yourself. No, not at all. I always viewed Rob as uh, my favorite fraternity brother, so it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's everybody's brother in some form, right? Some form of fashion. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, thank you again, Commissioner. We really appreciated having you. And as always, everybody, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.